Hello, podcast people, and welcome to another episode of the 219 Podcast. I am your host, David Driscoll, here today to talk about more industry-related subjects that those of you who have a fascination for the booze business can listen to in 20-minute intervals, give or take. Sometimes we go longer. But the point is, I want to give you something fun to do when you're in the car or working out or cleaning the house. And today, I want to talk to you about a conversation that I had with a friend this past week. And we're going to go a little bit longer than we usually go today, mainly because I just want to touch on this because I think you'll find it interesting. So my friend calls me up. He called me up to ask if I knew about the practice of using bots to purchase allocated and rare whiskeys off retail websites. So if you're unfamiliar with this practice, what happens is people who know how to write code or hackers, if you want to be super uh, uh, <laughs> dramatic about it, they, they write programs that plug into retail websites. They are alerted or the bot is alerted when the item of value comes into inventory and the bot allows them to place rapid orders for those products, securing them before everyday consumers like yourself can get to the website and place your own order. So if you shop at a, a certain retailer that gives you a notification when Weller or Blanton's or something rare comes back into stock, what would happen here is the bot would basically buy it before you were able to even get that notification. So my friend is asking for my opinion about bots and I ask him, what's worse, a retailer that price gouges or a retailer that is infested with bots? And his answer was, oh, clearly a retailer that price gouges. And I sat back and I said, well, why does it matter in the end? Because a retailer that allows itself to be overtaken by bots and a retailer that price gouges are ultimately the same in terms of the consumer. Because either way, the best consumers are not walking away with the bottles. Whether you're losing out to a software program or whether you're being gouged by a retailer, the end result is the same. You go home without the bottle for MSRP. So the number one question that I'm asked, even though I'm no longer in retail, is why aren't more retailers in America following the model that I used to run both at KNL Wine Merchants and at Mission, which was basically me curating and allocating bottles to consumers who showed a frequent record of consumership in the store. So for example, if Blanton's came in, I would allocate it out to the people who had shopped for everyday items as a thank you and a reward for their patronage of the store thereby keeping them happy and keeping them frequent, um, keeping them as frequent customers. And the answer is because that model is way too fucking expensive. Pardon my French, but if you think about how much it costs to hire somebody full time to look at these aspects and play matchmaker with these bottles, there's no way that a store can afford it. The amount of money and time that it takes to do this fairly doesn't equate to more money. Because whether you sell 100 bottles of Blanton's to a bot or whether you sell 100 bottles of Blanton's to 100 individual frequent customers of your store, you make the exact same amount of money. I'm not trying to be cynical about this. I'm just being real for the people that don't understand the business behind the business. There's no more money to be made by allocating those bottles out 
I simply did it because I thought it was the right thing to do and I could sleep better at night knowing that I was taking care of people because ultimately nobody wants to be taken advantage of. Consumers don't want to be taken advantage of. They feel outraged when a retailer gouges them on a whiskey that they know uh, is unfairly priced. But by the same token, a retailer doesn't want to be taken advantage by a consumer. They don't want somebody coming in and playing them for a fool only to show up on eBay five days later, flipping all the bottles that were given to them out of goodwill. It works both ways. So at the end of the day, there's not a lot more money to be made. And if you want to think about the money that is made as a result of goodwill. So, for example, if the 100 people that were given Blanton's during a fair allocation process were to spend an extra $1,000 over you know, the course of the next month, there's no guarantee that the amount of money from those consumers is going to be recouped by the salary of the person whose job it is to do this. What I'm saying is it might be more expensive to pay somebody to allocate your bottles fairly than what you'll make by allocating your bottles fairly. But that's not even what I'm here to talk about today. I'm here to talk about the even more difficult task of being the middleman in the booze business. There's no job harder than that of the distributor because the distributor's job is to go in and convince all of the snarky retail buyers, all of the hotshot bartenders that they need to purchase their product and not some other distributor's product. Even though there's 15 to 20 competitors who have a similar set of products, all of them at a high quality, their job is to win over and basically fight this war of attrition to not lose placements that they've gained throughout their turf. It's it's sort of like running for president, but there's never an election. You're just constantly kissing babies. You're constantly out there playing the field, winning people over, and building relationships, and you never get to take your foot off the gas because the moment you do that, some other distributor is going to come in and take your account away from you. So let me give you the inside dirt now about the distribution of alcohol in the United States. I want you to imagine this right now, this scenario. This dream of yours of starting your own whiskey company, you go out and you source the absolute most stunning whiskey that the world has ever known. You've got a great label, a great bottle, you and your buddy, you're new to the booze business, but at the same time, you've got a zeal and, a, and an energy that cannot be stopped because you're so fired up and you're so passionate about what you're doing. So you're ready to start selling this product in the United States. You're going to start in California and you're eventually going to move to Arizona and Washington and Oregon and you're going to take over the world, right? Let me give you the harsh reality of what really happens. So first off, as a producer, you're not allowed to sell your own product. You have to hire a distributor. Normally, you'll start in the state where you're located, but not necessarily. And you're going to have to hire a company to take the product in for you and sell that product for you. What happens is they place a purchase order, you send them the inventory, they may pay you in 30 days or they may pay you in 60 days because there's different distributors out there with different rules and different terms. So you're going to give away, let's say, $20,000 of whiskey to this distributor who you've signed an agreement with. And by the way, a number of distributors will will have uh, termination clauses. So you'll enter into an arrangement with them 
for them to sell your whiskey and whether they do or don't do their job, if you want to get out of the arrangement, good luck. You may be stuck with these people. In fact, there are some states in the United States that have what's called franchise laws. Uh, I believe Missouri is one of them. And if you enter into a contract with a distributor in a franchise state, they have rights to your brand pretty much forever. So imagine signing with the wrong distributor in Missouri and wanting to switch houses to somebody that can actually do their job. You're stuck. In any case, back to what we were talking about. So you're going to sign with a distributor in California and you're going to send them the product and hopefully you'll get paid within 30 to 60 days. And after the first two months, you look at the depletions report and you realize they haven't sold anything. So you call up your portfolio manager at that distributor and you say, you know what? I was really hoping that we were going to do better this month and maybe I can get in the car with your sales reps and drive around to some of the top accounts and introduce the brand. And and they tell you, yeah, maybe in three months we'll have some time for you. And you're like, three months? Good God, I, I can't just work the market whenever I'm available. And turns out, no, you have to get on a calendar with a bunch of other people to be able to work the market. So you go out there and you try to make some inroads on your own. And you're actually pretty good at it. You find that by bringing an open bottle around and tasting it with all of the retail buyers at the stores in your area, you're able to actually move some cases. So as time goes by and you start making all these placements, you start to ask yourself, why am I paying the distributor 30% of my profits when I'm the one going out and actually making all the placements? And it turns out, even if you wanted to represent yourself, you can't. You must hire a distributor in every single state, and it's likely that that distributor is going to be different in every single state. So it's not about just managing one partner in California. For every state that you add, you're hiring a completely different company with a completely different sales team, and your job is to manage all of them, and they may or may not do their job. They may or may not go out there and do the things that they promised you. And if it's a franchise state and you've, you've, you've signed a contract with them, you may not even be able to get out of that deal. So there are all sorts of pitfalls that await the new brand owner because of the way that the three-tier system works in the United States. I mean, I'm, I'm really just scratching the surface here. This is just uh, worst things that could happen to you. This is not to shit on distributors either. It is the hardest job that I've ever done because you'll, especially during COVID, can you imagine training an entire restaurant and bar staff, then coming back a month later to check in on them only to find that the entire staff is turned over and you're going to have to do the same thing again and again and again and again. And that's just one bar. Imagine working Los Angeles with thousands of bars and restaurants. And every time you go and you train a staff and you think you can walk away from that account, the bar manager flips over or or leaves or gets fired and you have to do it all over again. I mean, it is exhausting. So again, not to not in any way to talk badly about distributors. There are weak points and weak links all over this industry. And if you don't get the right person on your side, it can be very, very difficult to succeed. And going back to my original point about retail, there's not a lot of financial incentive for any of these companies to work harder and do their job the way that you think or expect that it should be done. However, in this wine and spirits industry, there are some people that do have morals and scruples and do believe in doing things the right way. 
And when you're one of those people, which I like to think that I am, you attract like-minded people and you end up becoming friends and you, you grow your network and you're able to work with those like-minded people on projects that do things in a way that um, is, is right and good for the customer and just. And so one of those people that I met very early on in my career is a man named Nicholas Palazzi, who has gone on to grow PM Spirits in the state of New York, as well as a huge import book. And he is one of the distributors who is most beloved by all spirits aficionados for his hard work, his authenticity, and his honesty when it comes to the distribution and sale of spirits. So let's bring him on and talk about his secret in the distribution business. I don't think we're doing anything differently. I just think we're doing our jobs, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, they're, they're, this is like, we're not saving lives. We're, we're, we're no brain surgeons. Like we, we, we're just, uh, we, we, we have a product that somebody trusted us with. We like these person uh, put in work, money towards making something. And, and this person said, Hey, here's my stuff. Please do your job. Simply, you know, like, and the job is like, tell the story, like a, like the product, be genuinely in interested in the product, genuinely like the product and, 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 and really be willing to tell the story and, and tell, tell people about it. So, so, so like the work, the work is simple. The, the work is know the product, like the product, go out and tell people about the product. And as you do that, pull a ball of the product and taste people on that stuff. And ask for the sale. That's that's the uh, that's like the the, the fifth uh, the fifth leg of the thing. If you're not doing your job, like you're not doing one of those five things, and and, and so you should be some, doing something else because because this is not there, there's no way you'll be successful if you're not telling the story. If you don't know fuck all about the product, if you, if you, if, you, if you're not telling the story, if you, if you don't put a ball in your bag. If you're not enthusiastic about it, and and if you don't ask the person that you just met who gave you 15 minutes of her time, if you don't ask that person like, you want to buy this, you should go work for the USPS or something. You know, I was telling the the listeners earlier before you came on about some of the horror stories that I've that I've both seen with my own eyes and heard about in distribution and. It's it's interesting to hear you say that just showing up and doing your job is actually excelling at this job. What are some of the worst things that you saw in distribution that led you to want to be better than what was out there? Uh, years and years and years ago, um, I flew for work with in a state that I won't mention just just because it, it's then it would be easy to to track down uh, which distributor that was. So I, I flew uh, I flew like a solid five plus hours for a two day market visit. A salesperson picked me up. We drove to a first appointment, the person wasn't there. So we drove another 40 minutes to the second appointment and the person was not interested in meeting nor tasting. Then we drove to a third appointment. And, and so we did that a few times. Um, we'd spend like, like, you know, three and a half hours in a car. I didn't meet anybody. So I, I asked the, the person, the, the, the salesperson, I was like, do we have meetings? Like, um, do, do, do we, did, did you, did you schedule stuff? Like, did you say to your accounts, I have this person is doing that thing. We will have these products. Can I come at that time, taste you on these three things? 
and and they just thought that it could just like drop by just like show up knock on the door and be like hey steve i got somebody with me i got a french guy with me we got stuff that you want to taste that's an example that's that's an that's an example of like like not being professional like not even not, not even having not even having meetings you know what i'm saying like like if, if you if you're a salesperson your job is to have meetings and let me jump in there to give some clarity for people nicholas is talking about taking time out of his schedule to fly out of the market where he works into another market which is a lot to ask a supplier to do because they have to leave their own backyard to go work in another market only to show up and find that the company that is supposed to be managing the brand in that territory didn't do any of the work in advance. And now he's flown all the way out there and taken time out of his schedule and nothing is getting done. And he's spending hours driving around in a car, selling to no one, talking to no one, wasting his time. And that is not an uncommon story in this business. That happens all the time. I understand the game because because we, we we wholesale in New York as well, right? So we import and we wholesale. So I I I understand that that like a buyer will schedule a meeting, you know, a week prior and is not realizing that you know on that day he or she's off and 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 you're being you know the person is not there when you show up and it's 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 annoying, but that's it's it's the game. It's fine. Like this, it happens. But but when there is a complete absence of planning, then yeah, it's 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 like disrespectful because because you spend time and money and 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 you could you could do you could do something else. Yeah. So so that's and that's that's just that's just one one example. And I'm I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying by any means like everybody sucks and we're amazing. It's not that like but, but not at all. But like we. Like horror stories in the business, like everybody has. We're trying to be respectful of the people we're trusting us with their products. There is essentially like after like 12, 12 plus years doing this, there's there is one simple rule that I think we figured the PM team is um, if we're not selling something, it's because we're not showing it. Like there, this is this is a hundred percent of the time. We're like looking at sales and we're like, wow, that stuff's not moving. And then and then the next thing that you do is like you pull a sample report and you're like, well, guess what? You know, no one pulled a sample of that stuff. Which 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 is not. It doesn't mean that no one cares. It's just like you you know as well as I do. Like our business, especially in the booze business, there's always new stuff coming on all the time. So people are both flying from like the new one new release to the other. So it's it's easy to you know get excited on a Tuesday because that stuff is being released and Thursday there's this other thing and what you know it's so you, you one may forget, but it's right. And you brought up a really great point there that I think is a great segue for us to go down, which is the the ADHD of our industry and of the consumers that support and drive our industry. We've gone from an industry that was brand loyal, where consumers would find a brand that they liked. And a lot of the education that we did was to help consumers find things that they liked that they could buy again and again and again. And, you know, maybe occasionally they would try something new. Now we live in an era where nobody drinks anything more than once. And in many cases, guys will all split a bottle send out 100 milliliter bottles and that's as much as they'll ever drink they'll drink 50 to 100 milliliters check it off their list post about it on social media and then they're never coming back to that product ever again how do you think that affects your side of the business i do the same thing 
like there, there, there's so much stuff like i i my my i'm 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 43 my my liver is just uh you know like like not performing the way it used to i'm not drinking like a full ball of this to then switch to a full ball of that so like like i i'm i'm the first one you know being super psyched when somebody sends me a sample or something and i drink like i have two i have two drams of that stuff and then i move on to something else so that's just the nature of the beast i think that the, the, the people you're describing tend to be the early adopters and for us they they are um key these people these people are looking for the stuff that we do these people tend to understand what we do then they tend to 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 have a better uh, uh grasp on you know a specific category or whatnot so this is it's super important for us that um uh, like these early adopters um you know get, get even like 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 a 50 ml something like if a friend shares something with them it's it's great because it you know puts us in on 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 these people's mind and that's 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 great but like there, there's just that many early adopters like the these early adopters like once once you looked at a few facebook groups and and some stuff on reddit like you you went around you went around these groups like pretty quickly and and every one of us i think is trying to appeal to these early adopters so 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 the if if we want to be successful then we need to expand like we we need to we need to reach out other people we need to um one way or another we, we need to find new customers uh and that's where that's that's where the game is hopefully we make some friendships um some of these early adopters are going to tell uh, five of their friends and and then if we do our job properly like as 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 we're trying to be evangelist for the products that we represent we will stumble upon you know other people who may not be on those facebook groups were just into like good stuff they trust us and they want to try these products and so that's how we increase the our customer base it's interesting what you're saying about these groups and finding people that uh, you can ultimately form relationships with because we've been talking about the ethics and the sort of morality behind finding like-minded people in our industry where just as you were saying, if you constantly go to a store and the buyer is never there and he never respects your appointments or he's always late and then he doesn't really seem all that excited to taste with you, that's maybe not somebody that you're going to form a relationship with. But you find somebody who's passionate, who works hard, and you want to form a relationship with that person. I think these early adopters and these groups that you're talking about, that's going to be the fourth tier of the three-tier system. We're actually right. going to have to add in a fourth tier which is early adopters and influencers. And then in those categories, we're going to have to cull which of these guys and gals are actually here to help us move these products and which of them are just looking for free samples. Absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that the, uh, first off, like it's very easy to, 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 to tell who's, who's out there for free samples and, 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 and who's, who, who really cares. Uh, it takes uh, it, it takes like the, the first like seven words of a, in an email or the first like two sentences of a conversation where you it's either the person is into like what you do and the product or the person is right away explaining like how amazing you know she is and that's uh, and and then you know <laughs> you know on which side of the fence like whether the person cares cares like you know about your stuff or or, or herself these um, early adopters. They're, they're simply people who care and they just care they, they care a little more than 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 you know others and 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 these are these are the people that we that we want to talk to uh first off because it feels good to talk to somebody who wants to listen to you 
because uh, we're talking to we're trying to, to we're spending a lot of time and energy talking to people who don't give a shit about, about what we do the stories and the, the, the products so so it actually feels good and and um first and foremost for these people that that we're trying to bring you know cool stuff and then hopefully uh we're, we're gonna we're, we're gonna manage to to find like a, a slightly bigger audience when you say that we want to talk to people that actually want to listen to us. It's amazing to me how many people in the wine and spirits industry who work as buyers or gatekeepers to certain accounts do not care about alcohol at all and are strictly there for numbers. When you compare and you contrast that against the growing number of, of these early adopters and influencers and passionate people that are out there on social media, it makes sense that brands have pivoted to that world because in that world you have nothing but people who are excited to feature your products talk about them and taste them and then you walk into a store with some super curmudgeon who just shits all over everything and uh doesn't like it and doesn't buy it when you compare and you contrast those two worlds one of them is much sunnier than the other and as a result i think uh brands are starting to put more stock in people just casual everyday drinkers online and social media than they are retail influencers who are waning in their ability to actually influence. It's it's it, it's somewhat true. I mean, I I would I would just uh, I would just venture to say like it's I feel like like one needs to be aware that you can't sell um, your stuff to everybody. So 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 if if you're if you understand your product and you understand the market, you're gonna find the right retailer and on-premise buyers who are gonna care. Uh, like they they exist they are out there like they they are they are our customers and 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 we're, we're super thankful um for their um, that that they're they're interested in, in in what we do but if 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 uh, the helicopter view uh, is sure like like there's a lot of people who are buying who don't really care they 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 they, they may care for one segment of the products that they're buying but like let's face it you you can't be an expert in everything there are people who are gonna we're gonna care deeply about brandy and they and 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 but they 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 you know don't care about rum and so this is like we need to identify them and we need to talk to them about brandy and then and then once we build that relationship and they sort of trust us we could be like unpretentiously we could be like hey you know if you like this in this category how about you try that it's not exactly the same but I can explain like why it tastes a little bit like you know the stuff that you like and 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 maybe we can take something. We can take somebody by you know by the hand and 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 get that person a little more interested in the other category. Like if we just have like a like a hammer approach of we we're gonna sell everything to everybody and everybody's gonna be interested, no, it's not gonna work out. Plus also, I mean, as you say, like brands have put so much money trying to like hammer buyers with like free trips and whatnot, like like a lot of a, uh, it's 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 the path of least resistance, right? Like you you get a lot of pressure, you you don't have you most likely stretch pretty thin. You get a rep from like like so and so was coming and says, hey, you know, you buy that many cases, we're gonna get you and your girlfriend to France for two weeks. It's obvious that this that's the path of least resistance. Like, why would you, you know, spend more time and care about like like stuff that's hard to sell that nobody knows about? Your point about not being able to know everything is really poignant here because in the past we sort of expected these people to know everything and now as you pointed out i think the consumers know far more than most retail buyers i mean i was a retail buyer for over a decade and i can tell you flat out most of my customers know way more than me now because they care way more than me 
I might know more about how to get the product here or of the products that are available, which one tastes the best, that type of stuff. But I don't necessarily know more about how these products are made because I don't love them necessarily as much as these people do. I have a general love for the overall category, like you said, or the overall industry. But when you get people that are really into rum and really into scotch and really into bourbon and they're hyper-focused on those subjects, those are the people that are always going to know more. It's just always going to be that way. So rather than try to compete with them, retail buyers should be trying to work with them to better their categories. But I think there's a there's a feeling of getting bumped off of you know your throne, so to speak. Like a, a buyer who has experience, a buyer who has some who will you know build some some self confidence as a result, um, you know her own issues is okay with who she is, doesn't feel the need to prove herself constantly with everybody, be superior to everybody else. Just, you know, like the, the, the person who's, uh, the person who's, who's like, for, for a woman, like there's no, there's no difference between, you know, professional me and, and personal me. Like you're talking to the person and you're talking to the real person. That person didn't put a face on this morning to be seen as somebody as she is working. And then you're going to be somebody completely different when, 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 when work is done, like, like that, that the person was, um, that person doesn't have usually like, a, like e their ego doesn't get in the way. And most of the stuff that m most, most of the time, what, what you describe, I feel is it's an, it's an ego question. Like if, if, uh, if I want to, if I want to flex because I feel like a little bit like in my unconsciously, I feel intimidated because like you, you, you're the, you're the great Dave Driscoll. Uh, and so I need to, I, I feel like I, I need to, to, to look like I know more than you. Uh, and I need to, I need to name drop like people and places and stuff. So just to make the, just to make sure that one understand that I'm more important than you, then yeah, that conversation is not going anywhere. People, people try to use alcohol as a way to be taken seriously. It's like no different than people talk about how much money they make or what degrees they have. They think that you're going to judge them by their level of achievement in a, on an academic level or financially, when really we're just judging them on, are you a good person? Do you treat people well? Are you polite? If we're going back to distribution, do you do your job? Do you make the appointments and do you deliver on expectations? And for some reason, this industry is rife for that type of parallel. The people that actually do their jobs understand that as as fun as this is, there are still obligations to be professional. And then the people that, like you just described, use their job as a way to present this idea of themselves to the world. And it's interesting that, again, we've brought up the idea of influencers as a fourth tier because it's happening there too. You've got people who are really just passionate about whiskey, and then you've got people who really want to sell you on the fact that they like whiskey, and they really want you to know that I really, really like whiskey, and I'm leading with that, and that's the most important thing about me. And so just like we've had to sort through these people in the import level, on the supplier level, in the distribution level, in the retail level, we're now sorting through these people um, on the fourth tier of early influencers. It's mostly, it's mostly a people issue. It depends on on on, on somebody's uh, uh, um, character, I guess. But the uh, when when you when you're in the when when you're in the wholesale business, uh, if your ego gets in the way, like like this, you're not gonna sell anything uh, because you need to you need to be you, you need to be good at what you do. You need to be reliable. You need to you need to to do what you say. You need to be nice. 
you need to genuinely care about the people that you're um, trying to sell stuff to. You need to genuinely care about the product you're trying to sell. You you need to set your ego aside, and you because otherwise, like, how are you create how, how are you gonna create that 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 relationship? So so the only reason why you're selling something is because there's a a human relationship between your buyer and yourself. If you are not uh, at peace with who you are, if you're not presenting yourself as like a genuine human being with like everybody has flaws and stuff, but it's fine. Like if you're not if you're not at peace with that, then you you are not going to be able to form strong relationships, and your sales are gonna suck. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up another episode of the 219 podcast. A big thank you to Mr. Nicholas Palazzi for joining us today. And I hope that you enjoyed the conversation and learned something about distribution. We'll see you next time.